The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. Well, if uh, you've got anxiety or suffer panic attacks, you might stay with us because Harry Barry is going to come in and talk about it shortly. Uh, but I would imagine there, there's a lot of anxiety, if not panic, down in Dolairn <laughs> at the state of what's going on. Please tell me, Shane Coleman, that there is an answer. Well, there's a lot of anxiety among journalists because we can't get any information. I have never seen anything like this. There is a lockdown of information that you would have only seen in the Soviet era. I have just about confirmed, and this is after ringing about I don't know, many phone calls, that there was actually a meeting between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil teams today. But as to where they met, how long it lasted for, what they spoke about, I'm afraid I haven't got a clue. But but you 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 went ballistic this morning on the on my independent uh, where you sort of said Sinn Fein are getting off scot free. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, just be, before I answer that question, by the way, just to say, I think the fact that there is no news coming from the the talks is probably good news in terms of how they're getting on. I think if there was problems there, we would have heard about them. Uh, just in relation to Sinn Fein and the Social Democrats, I just made the point that there is a certain hypocrisy about what Sinn Féin are saying. Now, I know Sinn Féin said they would not go into government with Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, uh, but so did Fianna Fáil said the same thing about But Fine nobody Gael. will go into government with uh, Sinn Féin. Sinn I just Féin think it's are a, toxic. Yeah, I just think it's a bit rich for Sinn Féin to be lambasting Fianna Fáil for not going into government, for not doing something they wouldn't do themselves. I think that is a little bit rich. I don't understand the logic of the Social Democrats. They said before the election they would consider going into government. I have made this point. If the Social Democrats... No, there's a difference between the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is baggage. No matter what way you, you, you parse it. Yeah, but it. then don't, lack, don't lecture other people. Don't whip yourself up into this ladder of indignation. But nobody's about listening to... Like, nobody's listening to Sinn Féin. Well, they're... they're there is some truth Ooh. to that. There yeah, is no, well, so you're there, right. There is Nobody's some truth listening to, that. to them because they're not relevant. So therefore, like, well, they're very relevant in this sense. They're so they're relevant in that Fianna Fáil don't want to leave them on the opposition opposition benches on their own. And I I can understand where Fianna Fáil is coming from. No, that Fianna Fáil is like nobody comes out of this clean because everybody is playing games with the future of the country. Every single party is is playing their own political advantage rather than, as they constantly say, the good of the country. Yeah, well, that's the nature of political parties. I mean, they're not going to commit political harry carry. They all they have to mind themselves. They have to they have to try and safeguard their future, while at the all same the while, time, ultimately, yeah, doing I would a deal. remind you that my when Lord Birkenhead said to Michael Collins, "I've signed my political death warrant," Collins turned around to him and said, "I've signed my actual death, death warrant." warrant. Yeah. Collins was prepared to die for a treaty he believed that was good for the country. Yeah, I'm not sure. You can, these guys I'm not sure you can compare government formation with the Anglo-Irish. Uh, these guys wouldn't risk. Of 1921. Their, these guys won't risk their seizure, their pension. 
for for well, the, you for could the you could you could make an argument that both Finnegale or Finnegale, Fianna Fáil, the Greens, and Labour Party have have seriously risked their seats by what they've done over the last five or six years. But we, we won't have that argument again. The Social Democrats, I don't understand the logic of where they're coming from. They said during the election campaign, at least Sinn Féin said, we will not go into government with the big party. Social Democrats said they would consider going into government with And particularly with Donnelly, Stephen Donnelly, who made a lot of sound, uh, because he's uh, strong in that field, a lot of sound economic comments. So therefore you would have to assume that if Donnelly were supporting government, you would get... Uh, some sound thinking on matters uh, economic. Yeah, uh, possibly. But, but but that's only party political advantage also. On I would think so. No, I would think so. Now, I, when I was filling in for you last week, he was on this show and he denied that. He said, look, it's not about... Uh, he said the numbers are simply not there. But if you, if you had Social Democrats, Labour, the Greens and Independents in with Fine Gael, you come almost to a majority. You would have a lot more stability in that. And I think you'd also have... I mean, my the worry I would have about the government that we will get, and I think it's pretty much inevitable we will get a government. It'll be, as I said to you four weeks ago, Fine Gael, minority government with independence and supporters from the outside, from Fianna Fáil. My, but the independents don't want to be in well, government. This is, my, this is my worry, is that... What kind of government will you get? Look at the kind of things the independents are talking about. They're talking about cardiac units in their local hospital. You're talking about roundabouts in Kenmare and there's an uh, element of DIT, DIT and Waterford, yeah. Wi-Fi are, and pubs. Are they stepping up to the plate on a national sense? I don't think they are. And I do worry you'll get a government that is effectively, it's a one for everyone in the audience type the government. The only government you can have now, I would put to you, forget the Grand Coalition, is that you have a government of Fine and Fine Gael only in government. That won't happen. The optics won't allow for that. Fine Gael, Why not? Because, I'll tell you why, there's 50 Fine Gael TDs. There is no way Fine Gael can sell a situation where they go into government and 30 of their of their 50 TDs are ministers because that's what would happen. 15 seniors and 15 juniors. It's not going to happen. They need to bring somebody else But bring in who? With them. Like Shane Ross and Michael Healy Ray and Maddie McGrath are as different as mm. uh, Pope Pius XII they are. and they are. I, I, I didn't say it's going to be easy. I didn't even say it's going to be good. I have serious worries about what it'll be. It's but that's what we will have. Happen. It is going to happen. Absolu- oh, it's absolutely going to happen. And you can put your house on it. It will happen. And it'll probably happen by tomorrow week, if, if not earlier than that. We will have well, a Well, it's not happening. My anxiety levels are going to speak. <laughs> I'm going to speak to my consultant. All right. If you come in here with the, this, with the, the truth, answer. don't come in here telling the truth and telling <laughs> facts. I know you, you won't tolerate it. This is appalling stuff. Shane Coleman, thanks. So. Appalling in terms of the politicians rather than Shane Coleman. Robin thinks Shane needs to cop on. Fianna Fáil don't want you in government, nor do they want them in opposition. Uh, Fianna Fáil is arrogant. Uh, Carl is an avid listener to the programme. He's at a work consignment in Israel. And he can pick it up because, of course, they're two hours ahead over. That's fantastic news. And uh, George, you plonker, uh, does it come as news to you that the politicians of this country have been nothing but mayfainers for years? And so it goes on. Uh, Delighted to welcome into the programme general practitioner, mental health expert, author, board member at AWARE, and now author of his latest tome, Flagging anxiety and panic, uh, Dr. Harry Barry. Dr. Barry, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi, George. Lovely uh, to see you again. Another book running to over 300 pages, but I'll tell everybody where to get it. 
Um, it's uh, published by Liberties Liberty Press. Liberties Press, yeah. Uh, I I yeah. Uh, did a fair bit of reading here on this. Um, this is in a, a do-it-yourself book, in a way. Yes, George. The, the, the reason behind this book, George, was, you know, for the last about five, seven years, yeah. you know, I've been kind of observing anxiety and I've been kind of very bothered that we do, that really it's quite clear that out there in the general public and indeed in, in, in the professional areas in some senses, I didn't think anxiety was really very well understood and very well managed. And, and yet we're seeing it nonstop in every conceivable form. Now, what yes. I thought about when I looked yeah. at this, I thought there was a big difference between anxiety and panic. And I, was, I yes. thought a lot of people might suffer from anxiety, but it would be a smaller number of people would have what you would describe as panic attacks. Isn't yes. that yeah, so? Yeah, I, I would agree with you, George. But they are kind of quite intimately linked. It's quite common, okay. for example, to see a person with general anxiety to, to kind of be getting, be handling his general anxiety, but eventually he eventually gets a panic attack. But panic attacks themselves, though, are incredibly common. I mean, to give you an idea, George... Uh, What's a panic attack? A panic How attack? does it manifest yes, yes, in no. A panic attack is, imagine that you were sitting here in the studio, George, and you were, you were kind of reading the newspaper or something like that before the show, and next minute you found your heart was pounding, you were shaking, you were sweating, you couldn't breathe... Uh, you thought something absolutely terrible was going to happen. You were taught this was the end. You know, I, I, I'm definitely going to die or I'm going to kind of completely lose it. Uh, you have no reason for it. There's no tr- seeming trigger. And uh, what happens is you get increasingly panicked because you think you're going to die. That's, that's the commonest thing that p- most people think. They think that something dreadful is going but, to happen. But I mean, uh, I didn't buy your book, right? Yeah. Uh, and I didn't consult with you or any other industry professional. But like, I had a ferocious panic attack, yes. uh, like when uh, they were going to give me a new knee. I was ab- It's interesting to talk about going to die. I yes. was absolutely convinced Vince, I wasn't yeah. going to come out of the well, what was actually happening there, George, to be honest, uh, is that you were actually anxious. You were actually, yeah. you, were ge- you were suffering really from typical general anxiety there, yeah. where you were actually catastrophizing. Because we have two parts of our brain, George. The right side of our brain is catastrophizer. That's the front of our brain is the catastrophizer. And the left side of the brain is the warrior. <laughs> and both of these are connected to a little gunslinger called the amygdala, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what you were doing was you were catastrophizing about what was going to happen. And the minute you start catastrophizing, George, you get this straight line down to this amygdala which is charge your stress system and it's the boy that causes all of the symptoms right. that, that you were complaining okay. yeah. that's that's the sort of technical yeah. point as yeah. it were but I mean as you're talking about this you know shortage of breath and heartbeat yes. I've had a ton of them in my life but I've yeah. never and I bet half the people listening have said why is Harry Barry going on about this I think the reason I think the reason George is you have to you have to uh, really distinguish between normal anxiety, you know, okay. which we all get. Well, that's like every solitary, yes, that's every solitary person in the country gets anxious before exams, yeah. anxious yeah. before big interviews, etc. That's absolutely normal. That's actually our body and our emotional mind getting our stress system ready to actually do the particular interview or whatever it is. In your case, it was an operation. But when that becomes much more than that, when we find that we're worrying continuously, we're exhausted all the time from worrying, we're totally catastrophizing all the time. All the time. All the time. And we okay. have this low-grade, persistent, chronic tiredness and exhaustion and poor concentration and, and these low-grade stomach and knots a lot of the time. 
breeding, breeding kind of sighing all the time, uh, all these kind of typical signs okay. of general anxiety, then it starts to intrude in our life and we start to catastrophize and suddenly we find what we do in our behaviour is we start delaying decisions, we procrastinate all the time, we kind of, we're afraid to take things on, we're looking for perfection all the time, we're trying to control life and what happens in that situation, we dig ourselves further and further into a hole. And, and, and the trouble with it is, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that everybody understands the catastrophizing part and the worrying side, but everybody has missed the, the actual physical nature of this. That anxiety is an extraordinarily physical condition. So it's not just, it doesn't just affect us in terms of the worrying and we're catastrophizing okay. and all that. We're actually getting to the same. Like some people are waking up in the morning, George, and there's lots of people out there will, 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 will absolutely equate to this. And they wake up in the morning and their stomach is in nuts and their heart is going fast and they're breathing a bit quickly and they can't understand why. Okay, I want you to know, get to yeah. the why, but yeah. my guest, of course, is Dr. Harry Barry, the book is flagging anxiety and panic, how to reshape uh, your anxious mind and brain, Fourteen ninety nine at Liberty's Press. And if you want to send me in, um, any of your thoughts, do so by text to 53106. Like, it's interesting you, you, you talk like about perfection. I yes. mean, perfection is a terrible thing to suffer from Absolutely, because, because yes. it, nothing yeah. has ever matches your kind of standards. But, but how do we yes. live with that? Because there isn't, in a sense, there's not like a cure for this. Well, there what is. What you there want to do is to live with Yes, it. yes, George. What we have to do is, uh, what we use in the book are classical cognitive behaviour therapy kind of a techniques. And in practice, George, we have seen these techniques we, Techniques work over and over okay, and over well again. Okay, well, I'm going to say to you now, I don't yeah. believe this at yeah. all. Okay, right. well, well. CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, mindfulness and all this sort yeah. of thing. I'm not sure about this. Well, let's so you'll have like, to convert me Right, now. okay. Well, l- let me give you an example of this, George. I put out a video on, on YouTube. Do you know what I mean? I was right. asked to do this, a 10-minute okay. video on panic attacks. It's been seen by 240,000 people in one year. Now that okay. suggests that this isn't just a minor little thing in the yeah. back in the no, back no. room, George. Yeah, right? No, and, I get that. And it, this affects, and it's so bad, say, for many young children or many young adolescents, you know, and teenagers and young young people, that some of them are self-harming, George. Yes, That's how I, serious I, it is I, because they don't, and nobody's teaching them what well, to do. But what's CBT like? What's mindfulness? mindfulness I'm worried about mi- Yeah, no, mindfulness is a, very, is a different animal altogether to CBT. So maybe okay. if I take CBT first. CBT is that our thoughts influence our emotions, which influence what we do. So, for example, if you're really anxious, George, about your operation, your thinking might be, I must be absolutely certain that this operation does does go well and I don't end up totally crocked or I don't right, end yeah. up dying on the... On the, on the right. So now what I do is I get incredibly anxious and I get all these physical symptoms because I'm very, very anxious because that's what happens when our emotional brain sees danger. It, it triggers yeah. the, this physical barrage and we get all these symptoms. But then it's our behaviour that gets us into trouble after that because what do we do? We start catastrophizing, we start ruminating, right. we go to Dr. Google, we search for every possible conceivable thing that might possibly happen during this operation and we look for reassurance from 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 those close to us, and you know, we we, we literally will live in that situation right up until. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, interesting. I don't want to personalise this, yeah. but at the same time, it's, it's probably useful. I I don't think I'm going to come out the op, right? Yes. So, fourteen of my near family, I'm never going to see again. Wife yeah. and children and 
grandchildren and everything else, right? Now, the interesting thing, people laughed at me a lot because I got religion, okay? Yes, and yeah. the night before, I went to confession and right. I hadn't been for a while. Okay. And I, but extraordinary, that helped, right? Now, I'm not actually yeah. suggesting confession for everybody. Yeah, yeah. That you have that, to that, find that was a calming thing. Why, why right. that calmed you down, George? It was simply the purpose of your behavior there was to calm your anxiety. Right. No, it was a, it like that. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, and it worked okay. very well. So, what for somebody you. has to find, yes, is, is so- our ways. Well, firstly, we have to challenge your thinking. So, right. if I were to actually challenge you, George, I would say to you, can you write down on a piece of paper for me? Get it out of your head. Get it down on paper. Can you write? Can you write down on paper? the absolute proof that you are going to die on the table. Have you got absolute certainty? Have the cardiologist been in and said, listen, George, I'm telling you, I've looked at your, your heart traces and you are going to die at quarter past eight on the table. Okay. In reality, do you know what I mean? So you, if you can't prove that, then you start challenging and you say, OK, well, where's my proof? But, so, but and that's what you have to do. Now, obviously, in, this, in the case of an operation, there is a percentage chance, George. And that's another really key thing in anxiety. There is a percentage chance that something might happen in the operation. And one of the things we have to start doing in, in anxiety in order to get better, we have to start accepting this percentage chance. So what we actually do is we give people exercises in everyday life to get rid of their whole demand for Interesting control. you talk about exercise. I'm yeah. sure you're talking about yes. different yes. exercises, yeah. maybe no, to yes. me. No, these are, these are what we call coin exercises. No, I understand yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. But running a few laps sometimes helps yes, too, doesn't it? Does. it? The reason that exercise helps is, believe it or not, it calms down the amygdala. All right, okay. So the amygdala is, is, is the guy that's causing all of the physical signs. And really, a very interesting new research is showing that the reason that people struggle with panic attacks and struggle with the physical nature of anxiety is that nobody has understood the amygdala. All right, but one of the things, for instance, they talk about, as a listener says, like eating, uh, you eat when, when you're anxious, don't you? So that's another uh, no, mechanism. Uh, uh, no, some people, home. again, it will vary from person to person. Some people will overeat when they're anxious and some people will not eat at all. In fact, for loads of women with general anxiety, what they actually do when they get very anxious and, you know, something minor happens happens, they get a telephone call and they start catastrophizing and suddenly they find their stomach is not and they stop eating. And they might indeed for 24, 48 hours right. until whatever they're uh, anxious about. But a very important point is that 90% of what we're anxious about never happens. So what you actually have to do is to teach people to learn to but, accept But what about a 29-year-old Dave like who's lost yes. his job? He sent me a text. He's tried CBT. He's tried yeah. pills. But like this is well, let's put it like this. But, but it, it, there, are, there are two issues there. Do you know what I mean? We, you know, obviously losing his job is a huge blow to his self-esteem, and he becomes very anxious about the future. Now, those are very understandable reasons for being anxious, um, and I would consider that a normal form of anxiety. Do you know what I mean? Um, but he lost his yeah, job because yeah. he was anxious. Ah, no, that's is, a different. Yeah, one. no, that's you see, a different. If you're one. if you're anxious all yeah. the time, it's very hard to function. Well, what I would say, to, I would really honestly say to him, get this book and read it because there are there because what I've done in this book, George, is I. You can imagine that you came to me and you sat in the chair opposite me and you gave me your story, and I started from square one and went through your story right through the whole way out the other end to show how you got better. And that's the way I did the book. In other words, I did it in the form of cases. Yeah. So that instead of this being kind of pie in the sky, woolly stuff, 
this was hard stuff sitting down in front of the uh, front of the person. Actually, what do I do? So when I was, for example, panic attacks, I've had people for years, maybe up to 10 years with panic attacks. We can get rid of panic attacks in one to two sessions. One to two really? sessions. But but like, how, I, I'm sorry for personalising this, yeah. but but uh, we're but also it, getting texts like, um, but the, the thing is, like I woke up one day last week and I said, I must be depressed, but I can't remember what I'm depressed about. Well, well, you have to ask yourself, did you wake up with the feelings of being anxious or did you wake up with the feelings of being down? I'm not sure. But yeah. do you know what very, I mean? No, no, like, but, it's very but I mean, I literally woke up and said, I must be depressed, but I, I don't know why I'm depressed, but I better find out quick why I'm yeah. depressed. No, no, the reality, George... The, the, but it, your mind is a lot... The, you can fix your stomach or your yes. chest. You can't fix your mind as easily. That's no, you can't. So no, important. no. What you have to do, George, and this is why the book really lays out clear kind of yes, plans and ideas. Yeah. And what you have to do, this is is persistent hard work if you want to change because the brain this is the wonderful part of the book the brain has the brain pathways can be changed so if for example i have i have become very anxious or getting lots of panic attacks or social anxiety a huge huge issue again uh, well a huge issue yes. socially would be meeting people yes. or speaking in front yes, of a group absolutely for so we can get rid of social anxiety in four to five sessions and yeah. the, the, the the tragedy is i've had people coming to me in their, in their 30s who can't have relationships because they can't get in to sufficiently uh, at ease in relation or in social situations to even to even get into a relationship. So what you have to do is you have to really through a, to a series of getting to understand what's going on and 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 um, uh, giving them specific exercises, which we do over a, over a number of sessions. And it's extraordinary. I, I remember one young lad walked in after session number five, shook my hands and said, it's, it's over. It's gone. I can now go in happily into social situations. But like you have a 19 year old here crippled, Jack and Kilkenny, yeah. crippled is the word he uses, yeah. with anxiety. Well, now, is, is he? Yeah. But but is you see, this is where we, we you know, we, we, you, you have to try to define uh, when, you know, the book is very good at doing this, by the way. Are you acutely anxious? Is it that you're kind of more worried about going into certain situations? For example, people get incredibly anxious going to, onto a plane. Some people get incredibly anxious driving on the motorway. Some people get incredibly anxious going into a lift. So uh, are you anxious all the time or is it just specific situations or are you actually just getting repeated panic attacks? And if you're getting repeated panic attacks, the incredible part of this book is that, yes, you can actually clear them. And we, we are releasing videos uh, one a week for the next four weeks, uh, which will be. Uh, but but yeah, y- yeah. the book isn't big on uh, tablets no. at all. In my opinion, uh, anxiety is fundamentally different from depression. That's it's 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 it's, it's fundamentally different in the sense that but people might be aware of that. Yeah, I, I, well, I think that's very very important. That yeah. in in anxiety, the, the the dysfunctional pathways in your brain can be very easily reshaped. Not easily reshaped, but with a bit of persistent hard work, that can be reshaped. And whereas, uh, I, in my opinion, uh, we should not be using, as, as, as if at all possible, medication for most forms of anxiety because they are so easily treatable with lots of other practical ways. Well, you can treat them by spending fourteen ninety nine at your bookstore. It's uh, Liberty's Press. It's uh, Flagging Anxiety and Panic, How to Reshape Your Anxious Mind and Brain. My guest, Dr. Harry Barry. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie 
a tragedy, of course, uh, in a sporting event is is particularly awful when people are doing it because, of course, they're so committed to their sport. So naturally, a uh, huge reaction to the death of the Portuguese fighter Jao Carvalho, uh, who died at an MMA event in the National Stadium. So obviously the issue, like any event, is about safety standards and so on. The the, um, 28-year-old boxer died at Beaumont Hospital. Now, journalist Ben uh, Kiley was at the event. Here he explains what happened. He was fighting on the, the inaugural Total Extreme Fighting event on Saturday night in the National Stadium. Uh, he lost via third round uh, TKO to Charlie Ward. He uh, stood up after the, after the fight, walked out of the cage, and was fine. Uh, did a medical check backstage, and he was cleared by the doctors. Then he started feeling ill about 20 minutes later. Uh, got headaches, was vomiting backstage, and they rushed him to the hospital. In, in Bowen Hospital, he, he was, uh, they found him in a serious condition, and then uh, he passed away last night at around uh, 25 to 10. All right, Conor McGregor was at the fight. Now, he, he had a reaction after the fight, but it's important to state this was before uh, he knew that there was a health issue with Carvalho. My teammate Charlie had a good win just there. Um, a hell of a fight. Your man took some big shots. Yeah. Talk could have been stopped maybe earlier. Um, I think the referees need to be on the ball a little bit, mm-hmm. but I'm happy for my teammate Charlie. got a solid, solid win. So. All right, uh, there you have uh, Conor McGregor. The interesting thing, which we might tease out uh, during the next few minutes, is the issue that should have been perhaps stopped earlier. Always a huge issue for a referee in any kind of boxing or fighting. Well, Glenn Ellis is an advanced paramedic with Code Blue. They provide the medical assistance ringside at MMA events in Ireland. He's, he's come into the studio. Glenn, welcome to the programme. George, thanks for the invitation. What exactly is Code Blue then? So Code Blue is a private medical firm that provides both education for teaching to doctors, nurses, uh, paramedics, and also we provide private medical services to such events as Electric Picnic, uh, Marty Park Venue as well for the um, the events that go on, concerts that go on around there, and as well as that, some races and other uh, events. Okay. Events. Now you're an advanced paramedic. What's an advanced paramedic? So we have a pre-hospital emergency care council here in Ireland, which will legislate and also license pre-hospital care providers. The highest level on this ranking is an advanced paramedic. It, then it's paramedic and emergency medical technician. Uh, okay. And then got so on. All right, so you're there. You've been, you've been, I'm sure, more than one of these MMA events, have you? I've been covering MMA events now for the last three years. Okay, yeah. so you really know what's going on. Um, the, there was a criticism before uh, one of these events by a neurosurgeon at Beaumont, Dan Healy, who said he was worried about the <coughs> medical attention. How do you react to that? It, Dan is a very respected member of the community within the MMA fraternity and has helped a lot of fighters and the sport grow to where it is today. Dan has concerns, obviously, as a medical professional with regards to how the business is done. Uh, Yes, we are a new uh, sport, so to speak, since 1993, uh, and we're growing with that. But Dan's concerns was the the MRI scans and the, the CT scans of fighters before. So we have on file a record we can look back and, and identify if a previous injury was there before. You see, the thing about it is, but uh, this is a very difficult conversation you and I are having in a way because a man has just died. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is, it's only a matter of weeks when a boxer almost died. So, I mean, if you're taking what Conor McGregor described as some very heavy shots mm-hmm. to the head, 
by definition, there is danger involved. But, but I mean, there's danger involved in lots of things. My sport, rugby, which I'm very passionate about, uh, soccer in relation to heading the ball and so on. But, but we do, the care of the athletes is, is crucial, isn't it? And it's our primary concern. As a passionate MMA fan, it's my primary concern. UFC was here last year. We had the eyes of the world looking on us. I had a conversation with Dan, uh, Dr. Davidson from the UFC and my response to him when, he's, when we were having a similar conversation was every fighter that steps into that ring is my concern. He's my responsibility until he goes home to his family and that's and from cold bluesy to us, that's what we do. We make sure everything is there. But the thing is, and, and it's, it's something, and I, I'm not having a particular discussion about MMA really, to be honest. I'm having a discussion about danger in sport because the problem is, I think, um, the issue of, of, of head injury, I think, has has underestimated maybe the wrong word, but because it's the most difficult thing to diagnose. I mean, if I break my arm, you can spot it from 10 paces. True. If I suffer brain damage, you can't. Let me put it like this. You referred to the uh, Eubank fight three weeks yeah. ago. So uh, the fighter involved in that fight was had a, um, a procedure done to him called rapid sequence induction, where the pre the ring doctors took control of his breathing, took control of his brain, basically to relax his brain. They ventilated him and they sent him to the nearest neurological hospital. When Code Blue is at an MMA event here in Ireland, we have special trained consultants and specialist registrars cage side to be able to carry out that procedure. We have the relevant drugs and the relevant equipment, advanced paramedic care ambulance to take control of the patient and transfer him to a neurological hospital safely. That's the level we are at. And there's not many sports, I believe, will have that level of care by their field or whatever you want to call it. Well, no, there's, there, you're not going to find that in touchline of your average rugby no. or soccer club. In fact, I, I often comment that the only sport they know where an ambulance follows the participant is actually horse racing. But, anyway, but the, the thing, though, with this that appears to be different from the Eubank fight is that the, the damage to the fighter was seen quicker because just listening to what the journalist was talking about, the boxer appeared to be okay at the end of the fight. Like he walked out of the cage, wasn't that? The cage fighter. That makes uh, it more difficult to assess. Yeah, it it could do. I, I can't comment on the fight on Saturday night because I wasn't there. I wasn't right, involved okay, in, the, in yeah. the fighter's care, so I can't make no, comment to that. No, but we do know he walked out. We I mean, do know he walked about, out and all yeah. the reports that the media are saying yeah. is he was smiling, he was, it yeah. was no problem. He walked back to the dressing room and back yeah. to the medical to get his post-fight medical which happens in every event from a neurological perspective a, neuro- a neurology test was carried out in them. now we would send fighters who have had a TKO or a KO out to a CT scan after a fight so for the likes of Bama and UFC who came here and in the future for homegrown sports every fighter that has a TKO and a KO afterwards whether they look fine or not will be sent to a private hospital there and then and have a CT scan carried out on Saturday night the fighter obviously started to deteriorate while that decision was being made and the rings but, but what it appears is the ringside medical physicians took control of that patient and immediately guided him into the Beaumont the, Hospital The um, situation regarding the, the and I, I've never seen it right? I didn't no, see I'd, I'd love it to come along sometime uh, <laughs> I don't think I could take it uh, but I, I, I didn't see Conor McGregor fights or any of that sort of stuff but for the purpose of meeting you yes. I looked at the video of this fight now to the to the last couple of minutes to the untrained eye and I don't think for this issue you need to be trained he gets hit hits the wire and goes to ground now because the in boxing obviously you have to step away and the referee does a count and so on but in this sport 
the the opponent continues to hit him. So he's thumping him five, six, seven times as he lies on the ground. Eventually, the referee comes in and stops the fight. So if you look at the video, you'll see yeah. the fighter, Carvalho's hand is up to his face, to the side of his face, and his hand is still moving. The, f- the other fighter, Ward, is actually hitting his hand. He's not hitting All his right. face, he's All protecting right. it. And it's only when Carvalho's hand stays still, it doesn't continue to protect himself, that's when the referee steps in. So the difference between MMA, say, and boxing, from a standing count perspective, is the fight is over at that point. In boxing, the fighter gets up, he gets an eight count, nine count, ten count, composes himself and goes back in. The da- if the damage is done, it's going to be continued going from there. But the f- in this case, it's a TKO, referee steps in, this fighter can't protect himself any further, fight over. Yeah, they, you see, the thing I suppose is really that um, the, the, the defenders of sport generally, be it rugby, soccer or anything else, the, the sporting bodies say, well, look, if kids don't play this sport, they'll get fat or maybe your kid in his bicycle could get hurt too or your kid on his uh, trampoline or whatever. Um, but there is a point at which the story we were about to do before the tragedy was a story which suggested the kids in playgrounds were now mimicking what they were seeing in MMA as reported in the Irish Independent. Now, one can imagine that because kids mimic everything they see. But that's a concern, of course, isn't it? I, did, I mean, on the way over, I was listening to an interview um, on the way over that, that was talking about the exact same thing. And my thoughts were of the, the presenter as well. WWF or WWE, as you called it, was a play-acting sport. It was a theatre possession that's, that kids have been following for years. Guys were jumping off the side of rings from 20 feet on top of people. It was theatrical. Kids didn't know that. You had kids jumping off bunk yeah. beds on top of their brother or sister at home with elbows into the head. The thing about MMA is everybody keeps going back to the striking aspect of the sport. The sport is not just about striking. It's tactical. It's getting a position into a, getting an opponent into a position where they will submit, whether that's through an arm bar where you lock the arm in a position or you actually put a chokehold on a patient. I've been doing this for three years. The three years I've been looking after the cage, the most serious injury I've seen is a broken jaw from a spinning kick. Okay, that's it. I've never had to carry out a rapid sequence induction about the side of the cage. We transported that patient to hospital. We've had in a Nevada State Commission study that was done in 1993 leading up to 2007. We had five fatalities internationally associated with the sports. That's the statistics. Going back to the kids, the kids will do whatever they're shown and by looking at Conor McGregor has, has actually opened the pathway to a lot of people in this country to go into mixed martial arts be that jiu-jitsu judo sure. boxing whatever and he's brought the international lies again to the small island of Ireland I, I see I agree but thank you uh, no no I agree I, I, but I don't think that the number of deaths is relevant I don't think it's relevant at all uh, because the purpose of, of, of the sport is not to kill somebody true, so therefore we, uh, one immediately accepts that if somebody dies it is an accident unless there's been medical malpractice but by and large it's an accident I accept yes. that totally what we don't know but we do know from boxing is that repeated blows to the head can lead to early dementia and Alzheimer's. We know that. Yes. So therefore, every participant in in mixed martial arts or boxing or rugby or heading the ball in soccer risks early dementia or Alzheimer's and your training or Dr. Healy's training as a neurologist in uh, Bowman Hospital and preeminent in this field, 
He doesn't know that. He can't check that. He can only do an x-ray. He can only do an x-ray on his arm or his leg. He can't do an x-ray on his brain. Not necessarily. I mean, currently as it stands up to today, the, the, the sport is still new to Ireland. That's what I'd say. And I'm not avoiding your question. It's new. We are, pro- we are putting together appropriate procedures um, going forward for pre-fights in the gates of every fighter in, through the Irish Amateur Pancreatic Association, the IAPA. They're an amateur organisation. We need a professional organisation similar to them to regulate the sport in here. And when the rules and regulations are at that standard... Because it's not regulated as such. Currently, the pro side of it is not regulated. There's no overseeing body. And the Minister for Sport uh, commented on this recently by saying it's not that he doesn't recognise MMA as an official sport. He does. But he's just nobody to talk to. So as a group of individuals, there are people working very, very hard. Coach John Kavanagh, Andy Ryan, Battlezone, uh, Dean Wade or Dean O'Sullivan, and Paul Kowser. Those guys are working hard to put rules and regulations on an amateur basis to carry on into the professional yeah. side. Now, the sport has grown at such a huge rate. We've professional bouts every weekend. Except you country. haven't answered the question. About the MRI. That you have no way of telling whether a participant has suffered brain damage leading to CTE and in turn leading to early no, dementia. No, no. And if you I, hit me 10 times in the head now before you go, yeah. we don't know what result that is going to happen we don't. until you autopsy me. I agree with you. I, I do agree. My point is that from a scanning perspective, okay, scanning it has to come in. Scanning happens after the fight. Uh, if a fighter is knocked down and a fighter is knocked out, he goes for a scan there and then. There is a CT scan taken on the night after the fight. Leading up to that, the fighter has an annual medical taken approximately 40 minutes with a, with a professional medical professional and he will assess him. From an MRI perspective, we are not yet MRIing fighters once a year, but we will be. But there isn't a machine currently on earth that can tell whether the brain is damaged or not. There's not. But I mean, similar to your, I, I, I eagerly watched no, your... No, your, I'm no, not banging no, it, man. No, no, I'm no, not no. banging it. I'm not, I'm not. I'm actually going to say is that I watched your interview recently on RTE and I was fascinated about it. It was absolutely excellent because when it was put to you about rugby conditions and conditions that were happening with kids in the field, immediately you came back and said, we can stop it before it starts, not put the thing in place afterwards. And you were talking about rules being put into place for sports to stop conditions from happening. It's very, very hard to do that. But recognising what you're saying, we can put MRIs okay. in place to f- identify what a fighter is beforehand and go from there. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Advanced Paramedic at Code Blue. They provide the medical assistance at ringside at MMA. Glenn Ellis. Glenn, uh, thank you for joining me. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, I'm joined now by uh, Mary Lou Bigelow, who was a former Pan Am stewardess. And the reason I've asked Mary Bigelow to join me uh, is because Mary Lou is one of more than 350 Pan Amers who will gather at the Limerick Strand Hotel and the Foynes Flying Boat Museum to celebrate uh, America and, of course, Pan Am's tremendous aviation link with Ireland and Foynes. Um, Mary Lou, welcome to the programme. Oh, well, thank you, George. Now, you're coming to Ireland for this reunion because, of course, Pan Am went out of business when? In 1991, December 4. A sad, sad day for all of us. Well, I I mean, Pan Am's connection with Ireland was enormous because at that time, uh, as you well know, transatlantic flights 
couldn't get all the way to Britain or whatever, so they had to land at Shannon for refueling and everything. And as kids, we used to go to Shannon Airport just to see the aeroplanes. And oh. I remember the great Pan Am, the fantastic history it had and its connection with Ireland. That's right. Well, of course, the flying boat, it's so interesting, too. I just realized that uh, Margaret O'Shaughnessy, the director of the museum, had um, planned this event. She's organized this event for all of us. And I noticed that she chose uh, April 11th through the 14th. And that is the first, April 11th was the first day back in 1939, uh, we shouldn't say this, but a year after I was born. <laughs> um, and um, it chose that for this reunion. Yeah, because Maureen O'Hara's husband was one of the very early pilots. Yeah. On, Charlie on those. Blair. Yeah. Now, why, I mean, you know, there, there are all kinds of reunions uh, go on for different reasons. Why the Pan Am reunion? I mean, it's as you said, it's it's the best part of a quarter of a century since it went out of business. Well, you know, it's absolutely amazing the Pan Am family that we have. Um, any all year long, we have many reunions here and there and everywhere because we have little. Uh, chapters, you know, of the bigger organizations, et cetera. We have the Pan Am stewardesses, or rather flight attendants, that's male and female. Um, they have an organization, and the Pan Am Historic Foundation, they have an organization. The pilots have an organization. And all of these have some sort of gatherings all year long, all over the world. And I have, don't know of another company of any type that has the loyalty and the love of aviation and, and um, you know, of this airline. It's just absolutely amazing to me. Now, of course, um, which would now be considered just awful, but, of course, uh, stewardesses had to retire when they were ma- got married. So this meant there was a constant intake of of young girls, so so an aeroplane like, like Pan Am looked like a modeling catwalk. <laughs> well, I don't know, but no, but it, it did. Was, I it mean, was. when you when you because so many women obviously had to leave, like you, when you got married, you had to leave. It meant there was a constant infusion of young girls. That was a fact of life, no? Well, that's true. In other words, they did in the beginning. Um, they did want to, uh, I mean, they made all of us retire at age 32. So naturally, as most of us got close to the end of the 20s, we all decided to, we had to go find people to get married to, you know, <laughs> in those days. And that's what happened. In fact, I had five roommates, and we all met people within six months and married them. Can you believe that? And did you meet them all on airplanes? Different places. Different. Okay. We met them in different places. The interesting thing, though, and my guest is former Pan Am stewardess Mary Lou Bigelow, because 350 former Pan Amers are going to be in Limerick uh, at the Foynes uh, Flying Boat Museum for a major reunion. But what's really interesting, I think, also, Mary Lou, in relation to Pan Am, 
when you look at other airlines, um, at, at, at pictures taken, you know, 50 years ago, the uniforms are quite dated. Now, I'm looking at a, a Pan Am picture of 1962, and it could have been in the last 10 years. I mean, the, the uniforms look really modern and up-to-date. Well, that doesn't go for all airlines. Now, you know, it's interesting. The airlines changed their uniforms throughout the years. Uh, many of them did. And Pan Am did. Um, I don't know if you uh, have heard about the Pan Am miniseries, but in the States there was a, uh, it was called Pan Am, and it was actually a Pan Am stewardess, um, former Pan Am stewardess, who uh, um, came up with the idea for this series and sold it to Sony. It only ran a year. But when I saw it in 2012, that's when it ran, when I saw it, I could not believe it looked like me with three of my other roommates. There were four girls all dressed in the same uniform that I had. But that uniform that I wore uh, went out of date. Uh, I mean, they changed it in 1965. Then they changed it to a pillbox hat, and then they, they um, you know, it changed uh, uh, throughout the years. But I still love that old uniform. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the, the other thing, though, um, talking to friends who were, who were um, Aer Lingus hostesses around this period, um, Americans used the word stewardess, but, but Aer Lingus used the word hostess in that period. The interviews were really tough because there were more uh, women wanted the job than there were places available. Absolutely. Now, was it similar with Pan Am? Oh, my goodness, yes, because originally I wanted Pan Am, but I had to be fluent in a language, and I could not kid myself. I knew my meager French would never, never pass. So I was very disappointed because Pan Am is the airline I wanted. So I looked around, and um, I interviewed others. I interviewed TWA, and very fortunately, though, they accepted me, but each time we had interviews, uh, I was told it was about, you know, well, there were, say, at least two to 300 people, young women that you were competing with each time in a room. But uh, I understand there was many more than that. That was only one day of interviews, and they might take one person out of that whole day, and then they'd have another day of interviews with another two or three hundred girls. So I was just very, very fortunate to get on with TWA and uh, flew their domestic runs for uh, nine months. And then I switched to their international runs, which was uh, across the Atlantic from New York to the gateway cities in Europe and back. But no matter what, I still wanted Pan Am. So I did switch in 1962. I was Lucky, I um, heard that they had lessened their requirements for language and uh, passed me on my meager French. Don't test me, by the did way. You, um, did you like the job? Oh, my gosh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, 
we didn't mind a little bit of hard work carrying the trays down the aisles, let's face it, because once we got to the other side, we went shopping and we went, you know, we dined in the greatest places and explored. You know, it was a way of seeing the world and somebody else paid us to do it. Why did you pack it up then? Because because you got married and you had to pay, you had to leave, was it? Unfortunately, yes. We had to leave at that time when we were married um, or if we had reached 32. But I, I, in order to marry, I had to quit. So that was rather, that was very sad to me. But anyway, um, in 1968, I believe, the, the girls fought it and finally um, changed that policy. It was the era, of course, of the romance of flying and the romance of travel. Sadly, our security situation around the globe has made it less romantic and less pleasant. But uh, it's good. Mary Lou, it's wonderful to talk to you. And uh, best of luck on the reunion. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I understand you've been over there. So why don't you come by and visit? Margaret O'Shaughnessy, the director of the museum, I'm sure would love to see you again. Yeah, well, I, I um, there, there's a there's a flying boat hanging from the ceiling, so you can have a look at it, and there's pictures <laughs> of Maureen O'Hara. It's a great place. You'll love it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, George. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.